December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 36 of the show. My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Scott Gardner. How you doing tonight, Scott? Hey, I'm doing keen. How about you? I just got home from a 10-hour day at work. I'm in a great fucking mood. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it wasn't that bad of a day. I, I, I took an hour lunch today because I had to work so long. Usually we only get 30 minutes. Uh, where we used to get an hour, and I used to like that, because I'd bring, like, four or five comics to work with me, and just, you know, you get a lot more reading done that way, but I went and grabbed myself a slice of pizza and sat there and read this issue of All-Star Squadron, and it wasn't too busy, I didn't have anybody piss me off, and, uh, yeah, it wasn't too bad. God, I was afraid we weren't going to get to record, though, because the freaking skies opened up again like they did last night. Oh really? Oh yeah, we were we we had storms for most of the evening until about two hours ago. I wonder what direction it's headed because it, it's been. I mean, I've seen some dark clouds today off and on, but, uh, but it was just it's it was been just, nice here. It's been scheduled for yesterday and today. It was scheduled uh, to uh, just have pop up storms every once in a while. And <laughs> peeling the curtain back a little further, Rachel and I were in Noonan last night. Because uh, we, were, we were thinking of going to see Despicable Me and grabbing some dinner at the Cracker Barrel. And we ended up not seeing the movie, but we also ended up driving around in the freaking rain for most of the evening. I got soaked several times having to run the store. <laughs> I just uh, had a terrible thought. Mm-hmm. You are recording, right? Yes, I am. Okay, excellent. All right. Because I know that I am not so... Okay, very right. good. No, I am recording. <laughs> <laughs> just so, wanted to make sure. Oh, that's okay. I, I, I don't blame you at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So we're ready to dive right into the latest and greatest issue of All-Star Squadron? Yes. Yes, we are. Okay, this is All-Star Squadron number 7, the March 1982 issue. Original cover price, a mere six dimes. This one was released December 24th, 1981. That's pretty awesome. Cover artist on this one is, unfortunately, Joe Kubert, who, sorry, just don't dig him. I really don't care for this cover, even with Liberty Bell's shirt is unbuttoned to, like, her belly button. Even with that, still don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I didn't even really notice. (laughs) She looks creepy on this. They removed the cleavage lines. Yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't happen today. Today, yeah. Ed Benes would be drawing this, and Hawk, <laughs> Hawk Girl, Liberty Bell, and, and Firebrand would be front and center. One would have their ass to the camera, and both would have their tits sticking out. So He's going to put the ass in All-Star Squadron. <laughs> there you go. Poor Johnny Quick. He's been cutting, too, man. He doesn't have any legs anymore. It's unfortunate. I feel bad for him. But he's so hopped up on painkillers, he's still crying <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> oh. Anyway, rest of the credits on this one. We got a uh, writer is Roy Thomas, of course. Penciler is Adrian Gonzalez. Inker, uh, Jerry Ordway. Colorist, Carl Gafford. Letterer, John Costanza. And edited by Len Wein. Roll call for this time, we have the Adam Firebrand, the second, the female Firebrand. Hawk Girl, Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Plastic Man, Robot Man, and The Shining Knight. Okay, getting into the synopsis here. Here we go. On a dark and cold December night, two figures walk down the streets of Washington, D.C. They bump into Private Al Pratt, who's secretly the Adam. And though there are words exchanged between them, they continue on their separate ways. The two men duck down a side street, and after saluting the wall and giving a Heil Hitler, Baron Blitzkrieg doffs his trench coat and complains about the soldier. He and Zwerg, the door, the dwarf, dwarf, not dwarf, not dwarf on golf, but the dwarf rather, (laughs) meet with members of the German American Bund. I don't know why that cracks me up. It just does. That word is very weird. I want to say like bund hole. (laughs) Anyway, okay, very good then. And And they go over their plans to kill both President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill by using a robot double of the Prime Minister when Churchill visits his American ally. Meanwhile, Al Pratt changes into the the Atom and meets with President Roosevelt. After reminiscing about their first meeting when the Justice Society formed, the Atom briefs the President on what his fellow Justice Society members uh, have been doing since they disbanded the team and enlisted into the military. Roosevelt asks the status of the non-JSA members, but the Adam does not, uh, does not know them quite as well. Melodramatically, the president has the Adam wheel him into the next room, and the Mighty Might is shocked to see the very heroes the two were just discussing. The teammates catch up uh, with one another before Roosevelt reveals the reason he called them all together. A plan has been uncovered to kill the British Prime Minister who is bound for America on a British destroyer. The next day, the All-Stars patrol the surrounding area of the U.S. naval base at Norfolk, Virginia. 
Hawk Girl, uh, The Shining Knight, Winged Victory, and Liberty Bell search the skies over the Atlantic while Johnny Quick and Firebrand patrol the surrounding road and Robot Man and the Atom stand firm at the naval installation itself. They spot the Duke of York, the destroyer that Churchill is traveling on, and once it pulls into port, there is a tremendous explosion, which Robot Man suspects to be the result of a German electric torpedo. Were there really such things as that? That was I forgot to make a yeah, note I forgot, about that. I forgot to look that up myself. Yeah. So Robot Man and the Atom charge into action but are mistaken as enemies and are attacked by the British sailors, who I apparently don't know who they are. I guess the <laughs> news of these guys hasn't traveled that far yet. Well, not only that, their ship just got attacked and two guys are running onto it. <laughs> That's a good point. After the mistake is cleared up, Robot Man spies a German U-boat, and with the help of Liberty Bell, the Shining Knight, and the Atom, says he lassoes the sub. But actually, Liberty Bell does the lassoing, right? Yeah. But Robot Man, he actually uh, begins to pull it onto the beach. Loved that part, by the way. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in the Prime Minister's quarters, Winston Churchill is shocked when confronted by Baron Blitzkrieg and his own robot double. Back on the beach, Robot Man succeeds in beaching the U-boat, and when the Nazis come out fighting, the All-Stars are there to take them on. Once the battle is over, the All-Stars stick around to see the historic meeting between Roosevelt and Churchill. Liberty Bell tries to engage the Prime Minister in conversation based on their history together, but Churchill doesn't respond. She realizes something is wrong and urges Johnny to do something. He is too late, however, and the Churchill robot explodes. When the dust clears, the All-Stars realize that Plastic Man had been impersonating the president all along and that both men were safe. Blitzkrieg escapes but is chased down by Robot Man. Much to Robot Man's surprise, the Baron knocks him down. The rest of the All-Stars arrive, and the Baron tries to fly away with Churchill. Realizing he can escape uh, alone, he drops the Prime Minister, who is rescued by Hawk Girl. After hitting Winged Victory with a powerful eye blast, Baron Blitzkrieg is able to get away clean. Soon after, Roosevelt and Churchill finally meet at the Capitol Airport. Two days later, the All-Stars are present when Roosevelt lights the White House Christmas tree and listens to a stirring speech given by the Prime Minister. And that's this issue of All-Star Squadron. Now, historic notes on this one. We've got some uh, really good ones here. We've got uh, this issue kicks off with a quote from Winston Churchill that says, uh, So we had one after all. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Now, this was taken from Churchill's writing and uh, was his reaction to hearing the news that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. And I have to say that this confused the shit out of me when I read it. I, I don't get, you know, it, it just seems like a very odd reaction. So we had one after all. Yeah. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful? Yeah. After because... hearing the news about Pearl Harbor? You know why? Because that was going to put us into the war. It's basically like he, he had been itching for us to get in, yeah. And 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 though it was a tragedy, basically it was just like holy shit, awesome. You know, they just pissed off the Americans. This 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 is done. So I, I really uh, I, I like that quote because I can see that being a very realistic reaction to Churchill, or on Churchill's part. Okay, I guess I can see it from that angle. 
a uh, letter writer in issue number 11, a little bit further down the road, would point out some discrepancies with the photo of the Justice Society that appears on the front of the Washington world from the first page of this issue. Hawkman is there, though he was, by by this time, no longer a member, and the Sandman was wearing his gas mask and suit costume. It is very likely that the editor of the world went uh, with a file photo which showed the charter members of the JSA minus the Spectre. It's a good know. point. Well, Spectre's there, though. So oh, is he? Yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. That, I'm just reading what the notes say, boy. <laughs> I know, I wrote this like years ago, and I'm like, what the hell was I talking about? But that's okay. That's you okay. must have been on a serious bender that night. <laughs> So, on page three, uh, Baron Blitzkrieg and Zwerg stop uh, before a wall that bears a poster for the MGM film Nazi Agent. The film featured Conrad Veet. Is it Veet? Is that how you pronounce that? I I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, Veet plays twins, one of which was a Nazi and the other was an American, forced to help a group of German spies. Eventually... Uh, the American kills his brother, assumes his identity, and exposes the spy ring. Cool. Let's see what else we got here. Not only do the members of the Justice Society, including the honorary members Superman and Batman, appear in the flashback detailing the group's origin, but they also appear as the Atom, uh, who had been trained to be a tank corpsman in Virginia, details how his fellow former members were doing now that they uh, had enjoyed the armed services. Hawkman had joined the Army Air Corps on the West Coast. The Sandman was trained to use a 37-millimeter uh, anti-aircraft cannon. Dr. Fate became a paratrooper. Dr. Midnight joined the Army Medical Corps. Starman was in flight training at Fort Randolph near San Antonio. Johnny Thunder joined the Navy. That <laughs> still cracks me up. And the Spectre had been keeping busy at home and even Green Lantern uh, enlisted. The Atom refers to Hawkman as a, is it Tyro? Tyro? I would say Tyro. Tyro. Or Dodo. A Dodo was a flyer in the Army Air Corps who had not yet soloed. The term Tyro, spelled T-Y-R-O, or alternately T-I-R-O, means novice or beginner and is taken from the Latin word Tyro, I guess, meaning a young soldier or recruit. The dodo handle is amusing when you consider all the solo flying the character had done. (laughs) Indeed. The Spectre couldn't join a branch of the armed services because he was, well, dead. (laughs) (laughs) The Shining Knight and Hawk Girl discuss Liberty Bell's swimming of the English Channel. This occurred in 1940 when the boat that she was traveling on to escape the Battle of Dunkirk was shot out of the water. When the two leaders greet each other, Roosevelt refers to Churchill as a former naval person, which was the prime minister's code name in their correspondence in 1940. Churchill called Roosevelt POTUS, which is short for President of the United States. Churchill would make his Marvel Universe version of this trip in Giant-Sized Invaders Number 1 from June of 1975, and that book was, of course, written by Roy Thomas. Go figure. All-Star Comments featured a new logo and two letters this month, plus a decent-sized footnote section. Now, do we want to go into said footnote section here? Yeah, some of them are repeats, but yeah, go ahead. There is some, uh, there, there's some pretty cool stuff here. Okay. 
Mike Christensen of Rockford, Illinois, gushed about the atmosphere of issue three and lent his voice to the question of where our man was. Roy told him to keep watching and mentioned that while the first three issues dealt directly with the war, the pendulum would soon swing the other way. Bill D. Middleton of Clovis, New Mexico, complimented the writing and art, but also mentioned the fact that the book meshes well with what Bill considered the newfound patriotism of the early 80s. Roy comments that DC would never been ashamed of its heritage and that despite dealing with America's lapses as well as uh, successes, this would be the direction the series would continue in. He finishes by writing that jumping on bandwagons or indulging in nostalgia was never their intention, just telling fun comic book stories. But, you know, I think the patriotism inherent in this series is, is one of the hallmarks of it. I think oh, that's yeah, one of the many totally. things that makes it awesome, at least to me. And then there was Roy's fabulous footnote. So in the fabulous footnote department, we have, uh, remember how we told you in our first issue that we were going to relegate most quote-unquote historical or nostalgic footnotes to our letters page? He says, well, we haven't been doing all that much of it so, uh, so far in the interest of printing more letters. But here are a few quickies following this issue's uh, page number to which they refer. So page three we have, by coincidence, the MGM film Nazi Agent with Conrad Veet was released nationwide on January 21st, 1942. So how's that for timing? Actually, that timing doesn't work at all. Because this store, oh wait, I guess this would be an advanced poster. Yeah. The, had, okay, I got That's I what get, I'm that, assuming too. Yeah, okay, I get it now. Page four, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill did indeed arrive in the U.S. on the new battleship Duke of York. On December 22, 1941, it was met at Washington Airport by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt that evening after dark. We added the fog that pops up later, just as we added the Nazi U-boat and, of course, the All-Star Squadron itself. <laughs> We've got to have some leeway, don't we? And as in, as in our story, uh, FDR actually served as president over 12 years without most people ever realizing how really crippled he was. Uh, times have changed and not, and not in every way for the better. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so page six, Fala, uh, FDR's Scottish Terrier, was the most photographed dog on earth during, during most of World War II. Okay, so page 27, excerpts from Churchill's speech on... The White House lawn of December 24th, 1941, are authentic, of course. Oh, and by the way, since those adventures didn't occur until mid-1942 or later, this encounter with Baron Blitzkrieg is the earliest yet recorded and precedes both uh, both those in tabloid-sized Superman-Wonder Woman, that's actually Superman versus Wonder Woman, uh, clash in all-new Collector's Edition Volume 7. Is that right? I think it's like C-56 or something like that, right? Anyway, from 1978. I just, uh -huh. wrote, was, I just wrote what was in the comic. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay, so that's their error, not yours. Okay. Yeah. And the baneful... I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that to sound snarky. I, I okay. just said... Um, you know what? There's an image here, and I'm going to enlarge it real quick to see if it actually gives what... Oh, C-54, that's it. I was close. C-54 is the... Uh, the issue on that well worth tracking down out there in listener land because that is a really fantastic story and the baneful barons two solo clashes with our amazing amazon in the pages of world's finest comics 
And that's it for historical notes on this one. So what do you what did you think overall and what do you got for notes, Michael? This is one of my favorite early issues of the series. Uh, it, it, it flat out is. I, I'm a big fan of the issues that Roy writes where he just... I mean, there was a big fight with Nazis on this. You know? mm-hmm. I'm not going to... You know, there's no denying that. That was really awesome. But also, it was just kind of a, you know, segue issue. And you used to get these. I used to love these types of issues, especially when I was reading the Superman books, because you'd have this big epic storyline, and then you'd have like an issue or two of just, you know, hey, what's going on? Let's set up the next story, but let's do some character work. And uh, you don't get that anymore, because it's got to go right into the next trade paperback. But, you know, I I wasn't a really big fan of the cover. But I'm not a really big fan of Joe Kubert. We've discussed that in the past. Mm-hmm. I, I did like the intro with Al Pratt bumping into Baron Blitzkrieg. Uh, I'm sorry, Al. Uh, you, you, you think about teaching him a lesson, he would have handed you your ass. Yep. <laughs> like in about two seconds. Uh, I'm going to re- uh, repeat what I said last week. I love Adrian Gonzalez's pencils. You know, Ordway does a masterful job inking them. But it's just, oh man, Blitzkrieg looks awesome throughout this entire issue. Just flat out. And I'm glad that Gonzalez, and maybe it was uh, uh, Jerry's inking that kept up with the, the uh, seeing the face under Adam's mask. I really liked the scene between him and, and FDR because, you know, you got to remember, Adam saved FDR's life. So right, gonna be, right. So, you know, they're probably not going to be the best of buds, but there's going to be a closeness between these two because of that, you know, more than probably the other heroes. And their conversation is great. And, and the artwork on pages 8 and 9, well, 7, 8, and 9, really, uh, with seeing the uh, Adrian Gonzalez version of all of the founding members of the JSA standing there looking at FDR, Batman looks freaking awesome in that image, uh, as does Superman. Uh, but the next two pages where we see what the JSA is up to are some nice montage pages as well. Um, I, I was a little fuzzy why Liberty Bell was with the two guys that can fly, or the, the two members that can fly. That's kind of weird to me. Um, but okay, whatever. Uh, I, I like the fact that Hot Girl is part of this group, like, as a full member, even though she mentions that she was never really a member of the JSA. But that doesn't really matter, because he called upon all mystery men and women to become part of the All-Star Squadron. So you were part right. of the team, you know, just regardless. Uh, page 13, kind of sad that Adam and Robot Man are discussing Robot Man's abilities to see far and all that, and um, he goes, uh, Adam says, you don't think the Nazis could have caused the fog somehow, do you, Robot Man? He goes, I don't see how, but then I'm only a scientist, not a prophet, Jim. Sorry, I had to add that in there. <laughs> but the Adam goes, yeah, a scientist who's built like a tank. I should be so lucky. And, and Robot Man says, I'll trade places with you, fella, any day of the week. And it's a sad line because you realize, you know, how tragic Robot Man's existence really is. But he has a smile on his face because that's the face of Robot Man. And it's kind of sad 
to realize he's got this smile on his face, but he's saying something very, very depressing. Uh, <laughs> I, too, loved Robot Man basically pulling the uh, beaching the Nazi U-boat. Mm-hmm. It was just awesome. It just shows shows how powerful he really is. Yep. Um, page eighteen. Love the shot of Baron Blitzkrieg with his hands, with his fists on his hips, uh, with the fake uh, Winston Churchill beside him. That's just a really good shot of the character. Page twenty. Holy crap! What an awesome fight! Oh, just everyone's in there getting the just beating Nazi ass all over the place. So it's really <laughs> good that the action scenes are. Um, are uh, sticking with their usual flair. Uh, liked that Plastic Man just kind of showed up randomly at the end of the issue. Yeah. Just and and what I liked about that mainly is the fact that it let you know that anybody could pop up at any time. You know, you could be reading an issue with four characters and suddenly, uh, like Superman will show up mm-hmm. and just be like, "I'm here. Let's go take care of this." And in this case, like Plastic Man. Uh, page twenty three. That middle panel of Robot Man holding the car is just really cool. Yes. I don't know why I like it so much, but it's just the perspective on it. You can just, you can feel him grabbing onto it and hear the tire, you know, the the front tire squealing. It's just great. Um, Page 24, man, Baron Blitzkrieg kicks everybody's ass. There's no... There's no stopping this guy, and I kind of like that because it makes him a very credible threat for the team. Yep. And uh, I really liked the speech uh, on the last page. Just, uh, just kind of a, kind of a bittersweet type of speech. I, I really need to track down. There have been several books written that collect Winston Churchill's speeches. Mm-hmm. And everybody that I know that is a history nut says you got to read these. Because they're very, very entertaining, but they're also on point and very profound in places. And uh, I, I just liked, you know, the the line that gets me in this speech is, you know, he, he's addressing the American people and saying basically that, you know, he's far from his country, he's far from his family, but he cannot truthfully say that he feels far from home. But he says, this is a strange Christmas Eve. Almost the whole world is locked in deadly struggle. Let us cast aside, for this night at least, the cares and dangers which beset us, and make for the children an evening of happiness in a world of storm. Let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Let us grown-ups share to the full in their unstinted pleasures before we turn again to the stern task and the formidable years that lie before us. Resolved that by our sacrifice and daring, these same children shall not be robbed of their inheritance or denied their right to live in a free and decent world. And so in God's mercy, a happy Christmas to you all. And the Adam says amen. I like that. It made me wonder if maybe this uh, speech might be recorded somewhere. You know, I hope so. Actually, we we yeah. should track it down, and if we do, maybe around Christmas time we'll play it. Just it's also got me thinking that, you know, we, we came in at the beginning, and I don't know what I was thinking I had this whole little skit I wanted to do to point out the fact that this is one of those classic Christmas in July type of situations. <laughs> I, I don't know if you ever had this as a kid, you know, living here. Well, actually, you didn't live in the South as a kid either, so you might no. remember this. Do you remember what a big deal it was in, in the North in July? You would always start seeing all these Christmas in July commercials. Yeah. 
Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. And, and that's what put me as I was reading this issue the other day. I was like, uh, it just suddenly occurred to me that. Here it is, July, and we're reading, you know, covering a Christmas issue. It was just, it was very surreal to me. But that's all I got. Oh, okay. Well, let's see here. I've got some pretty good notes for this. So now, right off the bat, I have to say, I loved this issue. I really, really did. Because this, to me, again, I I know I'm going to say this. I've already said it, and I know I'm going to say it again in the future. So forgive me, but this to me is is classic comics at their very best mm-hmm. because there are some some kind of goofy things that you you kind of have to suspend your disbelief for. You know, the fact that they could have completely lifelike robots in 1941 that would actually fool people into thinking that they were a living person like Winston Churchill. You know, that aside, it's still awesome, though. I really like it. But just running down my, my notes real quick. I don't like this cover. I'm sorry. I just don't. I know I said it earlier. I just want to reiterate that even despite the uh, the women with their shirts hanging open, just don't dig the cover. However, I love this opening splash page. Mm-hmm. Really, really nice opening splash page. And I think all around in this issue, the art is much improved over last issue. And I didn't think last issue was bad, but... It, you know, you could definitely tell that there had been a shift in the in the artists, and I think that Ordway did a masterful job of bridging the gap between the two artists and that changeover and ver- making it very smooth. However, I, I did feel it was a slight step down. However, this one, man, it's it's awesome. I, I think it's right back up to the level it was at, you know, before uh, when Buckler was on it. So I, I, you know, my hats off to these guys. I really, really like the art in this issue. Uh, something I didn't mention, did you like how the credits were laid out? I did, and I actually uh, I had a note about some of the things that are in the newspaper. On the left-hand side, or excuse me, the right-hand side, rather, we have an article here about Professor Indiana Jones having wed Marion Ravenwood in Egypt. I thought that was awesome, even though... They're a couple of decades off, as it turns out, that we would see that, you know, that wedding eventually in uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I still thought that that was really cool of Roy Thomas to kind of sneak that into the uh, the newspaper headlines. Also, uh, John Costanza, the letter, if you you, you kind of had to try to cipher out exactly what it said, because the print is really small and it runs off the page. But it, it sounds like he's kind of bitching about doing the... Uh, the lettering in this, or actually, he's the inker, isn't he? He's not the, uh, not the letterer, the inker in this one. John Costanza, he's a letterer. Is he the letterer? Yeah. Well, actually, it doesn't make much sense because he says something here. Why doesn't why does Austin, Terry Austin do do this? Yeah, do this work? Yeah, this hard work, and then something about uh, where's John Beatty at buying Zipatone. Yeah, but it's it's still funny. I really like that. I thought I got a kick out of that. So I, I like the little stuff that was snuck into the copy. I thought that was very clever. On page three, bottom panel, the dwarf totally looks like Edgar G. Robinson right there. I got a real <laughs> kick out. Of it. I want to see him go, yeah, see, Aaron Butchkrieg. I got a kick out of that. Page six. Last word balloon. It's spoken by the atom. Not going to read it. I'm just going to say, what the fuck, man? Come on. All right. Page seven. See, now there's going to be people out there that don't have access to this issue. are going to want to know what I'm talking about. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to tell you because I'm not getting into it. 
<laughs> page seven. Oh, the art on this page is really awesome. FDR looks fantastic right there, but even better than FDR, Superman. Oh, hell yeah. With Batman at his side. But man, Superman looks fantastic right there. I love that. that Just re- he, reiterating that line, I love from yeah. the origin, you know, not a battalion, we're not part of any army, we fight only in the cause of justice. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. So says Superman. Now, I gotta do something important and not hang with you people. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> he even puts down the law, he, he names the team, and then he's never around. I love it. I love Peace. it. Peace! Only Superman can get away with this kind of, this kind of thing. Uh, let's see, page eight. I just liked that it turned out that I was right last time and I'm not bragging or anything. I just, I thought I found it interesting in this story that FDR really was disappointed that the, so many of the JSA, or actually pretty much all the JSAers decided to enlist, even when he had explicitly asked them form this team, defend America here on the, on the home front. And they all quit (laughs) to go and enlist and i liked that that fdr pretty much calls him out on it yeah at least to the atom he comments on it i I thought that was very uh very cool um page 10 where was it where was it right uh right here robot man says we suspected you didn't uh send for us to start a couple of bridge rubbers sir and i was like the hell is a bridge rubber i (laughs) I did not know what that was. So according to something, probably Wikipedia, that I looked at, it said that a rubber bridge is a form of contract bridge and is played with four players. Uh, It is most often played for fun, but is also played seriously for money. Rubber bridge involves a high degree of skill, but there is also a fair amount of luck involved in who gets the best card. So it's some form of, of bridge, but I just was like, bridge rubbers? What the hell? I had no idea. Okay, my big bitch and complain for this issue, and I really don't have much to bitch and complain, I have to say, because I really, really liked this story a lot. However, it just wouldn't be a show with Scott Gardner in it if I didn't find something to bitch and complain about. So here you go. Um, all right, they're flying over the Atlantic, and somebody brings up, oh, Hawk Girl herself brings up the, fi- the fact that it's not exactly balmy out here. And then she says, the ninth metal in my belt and wings radiates just enough heat to keep me from turning into a flying popsicle. So now it radiates heat. Can I please, from somebody out there, get a short list of the things that nth metal doesn't do, please? It's ridiculous with this damn ninth metal, nth metal, whatever you want to call it. It does everything. It slices. It's a, it's, it dices. It's, it's yeah. a dessert topping. It's a floor wax. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus. I'm tired of the nth metal already. Okay. Just to reiterate, page 17 through 19. I love this sequence with Robot Man. Mm. Robot Man literally drags in a fucking U-boat. I mean, does it get more exciting than that? I don't think so. I think that's really, really cool. I, I just, I love that. Yeah. That, that is so classic. It's, to- it's great artwork, too. That's the thing. That, that you know, they didn't cheat on that sub on the beach on page Mm-mm. 19. Mm-mm. No, it's fantastic. I don't know I, if I you like- get that today. 
I mean, I love that shot, you know, where, where the sub is actually beached in that first panel on page 19. But I also love the last panel of page 17 where he's actually starting to haul it in. And just his stance and his body language right there looks really dynamic. I mean, he's hauling this friggin' ship in. And it's, oh, I love that. It's just, that just made the issue for me. I think it's fantastic. It's epic. And I really, really liked it. Indeed. Page 19. There's a panel here where uh, Adam references, uh, what is it? He says, between us, we've brought, uh, we've brought more wild things back alive than Frank Buck. And I just wanted to look up Frank Buck real quick. And he was a hunter and collector of wild animals. And he was most famous for a book that he wrote called Bring Him Back Alive. So he was, you know, a big game hunter that basically didn't, he didn't go out and just shoot stuff and kill it. You know, he, he was one of these like. Uh, conservationist. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, like an early conservationist, you know, capture the animals to put them in zoos type of type of poison. And you know what? I think that's it for me for this particular okay. one. I got I got one last note. Sure. P- page 20, uh, 21, excuse me, not 29, because there is no page 29. <laughs> I don't have that page in my book. Page 29, panel 6. Glad I talked you out of taking me to a hospital, Johnny. And this is Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick. And Johnny Quick says, sure, once I speed-dried your outfit. <laughs> How did that work exactly? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> here, you stand here naked while I dry your clothes. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, again, we've kind of got suckage when it comes to ads uh, outside of the the hostess ad, which I which we will no doubt get to in a second. <laughs> uh, the only thing that really drew my attention outside of the uh, like the spectacular goodies for you ad that had like a really horrendous drawing of R2-D2 opposite (laughs) of page 18 and a Chips figure, I guess. And, you know, just, just, you know, Dukes of Hazzard, Battlestar Galactica type stuff. On the back inside cover, I love looking at these from the past. Comics for Collectors. This Mm -hmm. is an ad for Moondance Comics from Brattleboro, Vermont. And it's just kind of interesting to see how much back issues were going for in the um, in the secondary market, or I guess the the mail order market? Jonah Hex number one, seven dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> what do you think that'd be worth today? Hmm, at least ten bucks. At yeah, least I, I, would, I would say I would say most of these would be five dollar books. Um. Mainly because you know they're about thirty years old now. Yeah, it's interesting to see that the Untold Legend of Batman number one has a three dollar price tag. Yeah, and that the New Teen Titans number one has a fifteen dollar price tag. So I guess that thing was pretty hot from the moment it hit the stands. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know. I think I only paid about ten bucks for mine back in like nineteen ninety six. Uh, the the most I paid was fifteen for issue number two because I could not find it, and, and and you don't find early issues of the New Teen Titans in fifty cent boxes or dollar I, boxes. I bought my number one of the fifty cent. Really? Box. <laughs> yeah, I did. Okay, generally, <laughs> I will take that back. Generally, though, you don't really find uh, find true. it in that. Um, 
They also have the Phantom Zone number one for a dollar fifty. And that thing had like a sixty cent price tag on it, didn't it? I think so, yeah. So I'm just I'm just getting the feeling that Moondance Comics just wanted to jack up the prices of these comics <laughs> for people who wanted back issues. Yeah, there are some definitely inflated prices here, I'm noticing. Uh, Captain Carrot, number one for $1.50. DC Comics Presents, number one for $5. And the first appearance of the new Teen Titans in issue 26 has a $15 price tag as well. That was a huge book at the time, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it had to be. I mean, that that was, no one knew it was coming, pretty much. Or, you know, probably the fan press was was, uh, talking about it. But you got to think that, you know... John Q. Fanboy, who's getting his comics from Phase Drugs or the 7-Eleven or the supermarket, you know, probably didn't know, you know, like, what the hell is the new Teen Titans? So, Mm -hmm. this is really sad. Because this is the last Hostess ad. Yeah. It's a doozy, though. I love this one. Yeah, I got a really big comment about this one when we're done with it. Okay. So I guess you'll be Batman because I was the Flash last week. Okay, sure. And you like being Batman, so uh, I'll sure. Why not? Again, everything, and you can be Batman. So right. we have <laughs> one. This this is kind of weird, folks, but uh, we've got Batman in the Canine Caper, <laughs> and we got Gotham Gr- Arena today. Kennel Club Dog Show. From the outside, it appears the Gotham Dog Show is running normally, but inside, the dogs are running wild. Spike, Spike, here, boy. Come back, poopsie. <laughs> My ultrasonic dog whistle has every pedigreed pooch in this place following me. Once I got them where I want them, the owners will pay me a mint to get their precious pets back. And it's this guy in a dog costume <laughs> blowing a whistle. <laughs> this show will be a doggone disaster unless I can stop K-9. Pray to me. With these hostess Twinkie cakes, <laughs> you don't look like the top of, type of dog who wants a bone canine. Munch on these. Pray to me. Oof. Twinkie cakes. I can't resist that light golden sponge cake and the luscious creamed filling. Oh, it's not pray to me. It's swear to me. Pray to me. Swear to me. Whatever. It's the same thing. Just like dogs couldn't resist your wishle, which I have. which I I have now this is such a ridiculous one I can't even read it great work Batman you saved the show just don't ask (laughs) just don't ask me to run for dog catcher commissioner and you get a big delight (laughs) in every bite of hostess Twinkie Cakes of all the villains that we've seen except maybe Iceberg Head I really want to see this guy come back to, like, modern... I want to see Jeff Johns or somebody bring this guy into the, the mainstream DC universe today. He, he, I think he could be epic. I want to see him in The Secret Six. Okay, I, I, my note on this is very simple. <laughs> Shouldn't this dude be at the Overlook Hotel going down on some guy in a hotel room that Jack Nicholson peers into? Oh. <laughs> he looks like that thing from yeah, the Shining. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he, he does. really, really does, and it creeps me out every time I see it because of that. That's messed up. It's a guy in a dog costume. 
I mean, come on. Looks like he's smoking a cigarette there, but it's his dog whistle. I mean, seriously, does you know, Batman, now, we've now seen him hanging out at, what was it, like a fashion show or something? And then that dude's concert. Yeah, and the concert, now he's at a dog show. I mean, is this the best work that Batman can find <laughs> in Gotham City? I mean, are these really the A-level threats that that you give up having any semblance of a normal life to pursue dog yeah. nappers? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> this, this, was, this was what we would call a, uh, a special one. Um, and when I say special, I, I really mean short bus special. <laughs> uh, like, I wear hockey equipment, but don't play for the team special. <laughs> yeah. Damn. K nine. K nine. Ah, maybe he's like, you know, we've got we've got lore, data, B four, and K nine. He he's one of he's one of Doctor Soon's projects. You know, this wait, is wait, like wait, the wait, really wait, wait, wait. really was, defective one. I completely forgot there was one named B four. <laughs> yes. Oh Jesus. <laughs> oh dear God in heaven. I'm gonna get uh, no, no. Seriously, I'm gonna get down on my knees, uh, dear Jesus. Please let me never hear that name again. <laughs> if I do, please let me forget it immediately. X X O O Mike Bailey. Thank you. <laughs> so we ready to get into elsewhere in the DC universe, so or the DC multiverse, so we can kind of wash our eyes of what we just saw. Oh my god, I need to cleanse the palate big time. Hang on, let me uh not enough bleach on the on the planet. Oh Jesus. Alright, here we go. Okay, now we're looking at cover dated, right? Yes. And it, it occurred to me as I was listening to uh last episode. Excellent job on the editing of that, by the way, Mike. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um good job on it, the back to the bins too. I liked the oh, little thanks. Fl- the little flourishes you added in there, especially <laughs> actually putting that uh Avengers video game thing uh in the ha <laughs> You cannot beat me. <laughs> I love that. Um but it occurred to me that we totally forgot to plug what page we were reading all of our uh, elsewhere oh, in the DC yeah, multiple uh, stuff it's, from. It's the first time we did it, so I'm sure Mike of uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, which you can find at www.dcindexes.com. Uh, Will forgive us. I do know he listens to the show, so hi, Mike. Excellent. Excellent. Tell us what you He's... think of the All-Star Squadron. I'm really wondering what your opinion is of it. I know you didn't like the the All-Star Comics run because it wasn't really in your wheelhouse, but uh, I'm kind of wondering if this is more of where you got into comics going by your origin story. Yes, I'm just talking to one listener, but I'm sure everyone is is still interested. (laughs) Have you ever had somebody on a podcast speak directly to you? Um, Because it's freaky. It freaks me out when when somebody does that. I, uh, at one point, I was looking uh, to get some opinions. This is before you and I met on what Star Wars novels maybe I should pick up because I was just kind of interested in reading some. And the one person that I knew that I could ask is my friend Garrett, who you've met at the various comic shows and stuff we've gone to. Uh-huh. Um, really cool guy. Hi, Garrett. But uh, at the end of an episode, I didn't have his email address. And I was just like, how the hell am I going to get in contact with oh, I remember with that, yeah. And I said, Garrett. And apparently he nearly drove off the road. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I don't know if I've ever had anybody directly speak to me. I get really weirded out when I hear myself talked about. And not like, oh, they're fucking talking about me. God damn it. I don't want them talking about me. I bet they're saying some shitty things. It's just like you're devoting parts of this episode to mention me why. I mean, I'm just like right. confused. <laughs> but no, I've, I've had – I've literally had people – you know, like speak to me personally directly in a podcast, and it it does kind of really kind of freak me out. So I, I need to do that sometimes. I need to I need to speak directly to somebody in a podcast and see if it kind of you know what they say later. Oh, I'll do it right now. I'll say, all right, you. I'm talking directly to you right now. Do you hear me? Not you, asshole. You. Yeah, you. Okay. So write in and tell us what you think about that. Anyway, <laughs> where were we? <laughs> Um, first cover that cr- catches my eyes is the Best of DC number twenty-two, Christmas with the Superheroes. Mm-hmm. That's a rich, nice one. That's a Rich Buckler rich one. Buck- Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> hey, it's just not an episode without mentioning Rich Buckler, is it? Not during this era, no. Once again, just like last month, I, I notice just absolute domination by George Perez on these mm-hmm. covers, and it's awesome. Because yes, that uh, Justice League of America number two hundred—that's actually a wraparound cover. That's I fantastic. love that cover. Yeah, good issue too. I, I was kind of lukewarm about the issue itself. I don't know why. I can't tell you. I remember because I, I was going through my JLA run at one point, and I got to this issue. I, I bet I you I know this. why. Why? Because uh, the the fight that you probably anticipated the most, just like I did kind of sucks and it's got the worst art of the whole issue which is i think the- i think it was the mixing up of the of the artists that really got to me because i just wanted to see george perez or perez draw the whole damn thing i really did who did the um green arrow and black canary versus batman was that mike grell because that one was really good whoever it was i liked that chapter i'm not seeing grell listed uh, Pat Broderick, maybe. No, I don't. I don't. Well, I don't think it was, but I, I honestly, I can't remember. Then again, I, I wouldn't complain about Pat Broderick because I love Pat Broderick. <laughs> no, no, I, I do too. It's just I, I can picture what the art looks like in my head, and I honestly don't remember it being uh, Broderick's style. But let me see who else is. It? Oh, Brian Boland. That's who it was. It was Brian Boland. Yeah. Yeah, I could see him having a, a close style to Grell. It's like it's like looking at er, uh, Dan, early Dan Jurgen's work and seeing a lot of Grell in there, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I guess, why he was drawing Warlord and then Green Arrow at one point because their styles mesh nicely. Uh, how's that issue of Jonah Hex? Do you have any? Particular I was trying memories? to remember that when I really I can't remember it to be honest with you. My my memories are fuzzy of that era got another anniversary issue with Green Lantern number 150. I think I've read that. I'm not quite sure. If you want to read disturbing, and I mean like seriously like whoa, this just uh this makes me all kinds of uncomfortable. This story arc right here in Wonder Woman where she battles Captain Wonder is some seriously strange shit because Captain Wonder turns out to be like the physical manifestation of Steve Trevor's deep des- like like subconscious desire to be Wonder Woman and so it it manifests it manifests itself in reality 
as this blonde dude dressed in Wonder Woman's outfit that she ends up fighting, and it's just all kinds of wrong, dude. It's yeah, it's it's messed up big time. That um that cover to Phantom Zone number three, yeah, that happened to me a lot in high school. <laughs> Go to make out with a chick and her head would explode. Damn it. I love, love that issue of Superman number three sixty nine where uh the you know, I, just beating the shit out of him. I could be dead wrong, but I think that's actually my introduction to the parasite i i do believe let me see who is the artist on that once again it's rich buckler on the end yeah great art in that one but it's a really good story too and it's also where i found out that the parasite i don't know if he if he kept it all the time but at least during the course of this issue he knew who superman really was because he had you know he had touched him and I thought that was big In shit bad as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> they took him away. I was kind of disappointed, and it has nothing to do with any of the covers this this month, but I wanted to mention, because we were talking about the Phantom Zone miniseries. Today on eBay, I won the Superman Tales of the Phantom Zone trade paperback for six bucks. It's not in there. It's not in there! I know. What the fuck? <laughs> It's I like don't think best, it's been reprinted, has it? It's like, it's like the best Phantom Zone story ever, and it's yep. not in there. I mean, nope. I'm, I'm glad I got it for the price I got it as, because I'm telling you right now, those like, you know, Bottled City of Candor and Tales of, uh, you know, Nightwing and Flamebird and Tales of Phantom Zone and all that, you know, I want those, but I really don't want to pay $20, $25 a piece for them. So, <laughs> so I, you know, again, people, if you're patient and you just watch eBay, Yep. You'll find this crap cheap. Yep. Really cheap. So, uh, yeah, not in there. What the hell? I like that cover to Superman Family as well. Even though I'm not a fan of that costume, that's a really good uh, that's a really good Supergirl on there battling the volcanic villain. Bob Oskner. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a serviceable artist. Yeah, no, I I, I kind of dig it. It's kind of weird, kind of different. You know, I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't put him as like one of my favorites. But when I see Bob Oskar's art in like an issue of Superman, I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, that's good. It's not, it's not like when you, it's not like the Gil Kane art from Action Comics that I really, really don't like. Oh, <laughs> see, I, I actually, Sorry. I actually kind of dig that stuff. <laughs> I love the. Uh, you know, again with the Perez, we've got Perez uh, doing the cover to Action Five Twenty Nine, yes. which is really dynamic. I like that one. I like uh, the one here for uh, World's Finest Two Seventy Seven as well, because it's got that like sepia tone. That one's really kind of weird looking, but it's cool. I, I have to honestly say this: I really prefer '80s Perez Superman to the Superman he drew, like in um, JLA Avengers. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. whatever reason, I just I just prefer that. It's just he seems a little too much square. Like the body type is too square in JLA Avengers, and the cape's a little off. I mean, I'm not complaining about Perez art because I love George Perez's art. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's coming to Dragon Con, so hopefully you and I will be there when we can uh, get in line to get his uh, to get his autograph uh, or his signature on something. Because by hook or by crook. Uh, I'm going to get him to sign my Absolute Crisis on Infinite Earths. And last year he was doing this. I'm going to put away 20 bucks if he's doing it again this year. 
because they'll draw you a sketch right then and there. And I would really just like to say, look, don't put it on a, on a backing board. Just put it in this book. <laughs> and then have Absolute Crisis on Infinite Earths signed by Perez with a Superman sketch inside. Wow. I want that, and I think I can make it happen. So, <laughs> um, so how exactly did Superboy have a secret mission for President Kennedy when Superman also had a secret mission with President they, Kennedy? How does they, that work? It was a retcon. It was one of those things that they re- they did the, a little bit of retroactive continuity on it to since Superman Superman's now twenty eight to thirty in nineteen eighty one nineteen eighty two. He would have been a teenager in the '60s, so it would be, you know, you know, the secret message. Somebody made a joke about that one, once, and I don't know who it was that eventually you were going to get Super Baby Secret Mission. Didn't we? <laughs> you Didn't might we not? Have. I don't remember. Maybe I'm just remembering the joke, but I, I thought that eventually that did really happen. But yeah, I, I've I've heard the same thing. Uh, uh, Are you? Go ahead. We keep walking over each other. I'm very, very sorry. Um, oh, it's it's me. I just can't shut up. Um, a book we will be covering in a future episode uh, is Brave and the Bold number 184, which mm. I can't find in my collection, and I can't... It, it's going to be in, like, the most random place ever. And, you know, back when I had 500 books, I could look through every book pretty quick <laughs> to find an issue. Now when I have to sit there and actually plan out how I'm going to pull a comic... It's like, damn. That's why you put them all in alphabetical order. It's just the easiest. Okay, that's fine. Z's <laughs> in the back of the comic closet, Scott, and I need to get an issue of Xenobrood. <laughs> well, I then, guess it would be X. But all right, who 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 needs an issue of Xenobrood? But <laughs> no, I see what your point is. That should be on our first Tales of the JSA T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> You were mentioning uh, Pat Broderick earlier, and I was just going to mention uh, Legion of Superheroes number 285. That's him on the cover, and I think I think he did the uh, interiors of that issue as well, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, this should tell us, right? Let's see here. Yes. Yeah, he did. He did the interiors on that. He was on Legion of Superheroes for like five minutes between whoever was there and when uh, Mike Grell – or excuse me um, – uh, Keith Given rather came along, and and visually he's drawing two of my favorite Legionnaires from this era on that cover. I've always liked this costume for Colossal Boy. Yeah, uh, and Monel Monel just had a great costume. Monel absolutely awesome. awesome. There in the uh, Who's Who update eighty seven. I forget who drew him, but it's one of the best pictures of Monel ever drawn. So. Uh, thank you, James Robinson, for making him boring as hell. <laughs> Appreciate that, really. He says, no problem. <laughs> Did we mention the uh, Perez cover on DC's special Blue Ribbon Digest number 19, the Doom Patrol? thought that was cool, too. I didn't really notice it because I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't really, I'm not really that hot on the Doom Patrol. I don't hate them. It's not like something where I look at them and go, God damn it, it's not the fucking Doom Patrol again. Uh, because, you know, you have to kind of develop a fondness for the Doom Patrol if you're going to read early issues of the new Teen Titans. Yeah, that's um, true. Because, man, they they talk about the Doom Patrol a lot. But um, I just have never really cared for the team. Yeah. 
uh, and, I, and I really can't put my finger on it because they're an interesting team. You know, it, it's it's a great concept. It's just, I think it was because when I first came became aware of Doom Patrol, it was during the Morrison run. And everyone I've talked to who likes that run says, oh, it's brilliant, but that artwork always put me off. Yeah. For, like, it literally made me uncomfortable, and I didn't want to read it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's all I got for this outside of Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew number one. <laughs> that's it for me as well. All right, you want to take a quick break and then come uh, come back for the shortest Huntress section ever? <laughs> all right. He was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two truefreaks.libson.com. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like guys look out. Here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. Life is a great big hang up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find the Spider Man. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Superman. 
Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hi, my name is Paul Spataro. Back in 2004, my family lost my older brother Michael to pancreatic cancer. Before Michael was diagnosed with this disease, I really didn't know too much about it. But the truth of the matter is, it's a devastating disease, and in general, once somebody is diagnosed with it, it's too late to actually help them. I've learned that pancreatic cancer is the nation's fourth leading cause of cancer death and that the survival rate for the disease has not improved in 25 years. I also learned about the Lustgarden Foundation. That's a foundation that's named after a man named Mark Lustgarden. Mr. Lustgarden was a high-ranking executive in the company of Cablevision and when he was diagnosed with the disease... Despite the fact that he was a wealthy man, there was nothing that could be done, and unfortunately, he passed away from the disease as well. Moved by that loss, Cablevision has started a foundation in his honor, and they've generously underwritten all expenses of that foundation so that any fundraising efforts can be used strictly towards research of pancreatic cancer. I learned of the Garden Foundation shortly after my brother passed away, and I started that year walking in its Long Island fundraiser walk. And I've walked every year since. This year the walk is going to be on July 25th. I will be walking along with my wife, my son, my daughter, my mother, my sister, and other family members. We walk as Team Spataro in an effort to raise funds, raise awareness, and to honor my brother. I hope you would consider donating to this worthwhile cause. There will be a link to our team page on this podcast's homepage. Please consider clicking on that link and donating. And keep in mind, no amount is too small. There will be people who donated very, very generously, but don't be swayed by that. Any amount will help and brings us that much closer to a cure. Nobody should have to suffer the way my brother did, and I hope that one day, through the efforts of the Lust Garden Foundation, all such suffering can be ended. I thank you for your consideration. Journey now to an unfamiliar world. Not the one where the heroes of the Justice League stand proud, but Earth 2. Where Helena Wayne carries on her father's mission by battling crime as... The Huntress. Alrighty, and we are back with The Huntress Backup from Wonder Woman number 277. The story is called Secrets, Secrets Everywhere, and it is the only one we're going to be covering this week because it's pretty much a one and done. And it leads into a, uh, you know, the next one is a three-parter, so we will be dealing with that as like a full issue. But uh, this is uh, Paul Levitz and Joe Staten as storytellers, uh, Steve Mitchell Inker, and, uh, and we've got Helena Wayne staring out on a darkened, snow-covered night, musing about the fact 
that in the 40 years of crime fighting, her dad managed to keep his secret identity perfectly secret for all that time, and not one living soul ever discovered he was the Batman. And I guess that's technically true, because anybody who f- who found out either died or he revealed his identity to them. Uh, she managed to blow that uh, chance of beating that record in her very first year. So she thinks about how Harry Sims knows who she is. She thinks more about her father. And she thinks about the fact that she just can't kill Harry. And there's no other way to relieve him of that knowledge, or is there? <laughs> so, what? So we cut across to the offices of Helena Wayne's law office, where Carol, the secretary, is telling the person who's been blackmailing her that she can't pay her anymore. And it turns out that the person blackmailing her is her ex-husband, Joe. And now not only is he taking money from her, but he is also having Carol go into the confidential files and get dirt on other people he can blackmail. Carol mouths off to him, and he pimp slaps her. And <laughs> he does. It's a total yes, like, whoops. Well, he does. You know, Shut I, up, I, bitch. I really expect him to say, say, Jim, whoa. <laughs> but before he can deliver another blow, the Huntress stops him, and he runs off. Carol then basically spills the beans on who he is and what she's been doing to the Huntress. And the Huntress basically says, you know, I'll take care of this. So we cut to Harry Sims thinking about, you know, the the fact that he knows Helena's secret and that he feels strongly about her. And he wonders how she really feels about his knowing. So we cut to the Huntress, who is taking her mind off of things by tracking Carol's ex-husband, which she does by leaping onto a moving subway car. She chases him down, goes, Joe? Joe Martin? He goes, huh? Turn around, Joe. And then beats the hell out of him. And somewhere in there, (laughs) they never reveal how, but basically he gets her to leave Carol alone. So the Huntress goes back to Carol. Carol is upset because all she asked was for her to talk to him and into not telling anyone her secret. And the Huntress basically says, look, you know, the people you work for are more understanding than you think. Come clean with them and everything's going to be okay. And then she, as she swings off, she wonders if she can follow her own advice. And next, the lion roars at midnight. So what are your notes on this? Because I have barely any. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I, I like the story a lot. I really did, but uh, I, I don't really have too much on it. Now, I liked that we have a nice symmetry between our um, All-Star Squadron tale took place, you know, in 1941, and then this tale that takes place in 19, what is this, 81 or 82, yet they're both still in the wintertime, so we're f- totally going forward with the Christmas in July theme. <laughs> I really like that. But... um yeah, the the page one, the very first statement she makes about, you know, in 40 years, you know, nobody ever learned the Batman secret. I'm just going, you know, is that really true? Because I'm thinking, like, except maybe everybody. It seems like everybody knows Batman's identity. <laughs> is that – maybe I'm thinking too much of the Earth one Batman, but, you know – it just seemed like there were a lot of people that did know who Batman really was. So I don't know that her she's really got her facts straight. I, yeah, I think maybe I, I've she's... Got, I've got a note about that, too, and it's actually on the next page where she says, uh, you only trusted Mom and Dick with your secret. 
and me, of course. And I'm like, and Alfred, and Superman. Right. And, and Superman, Superman. Yeah. And Wonder Woman, <laughs> and Hawkman, and The Flash, and everybody else in the Justice Society. Yeah. I'm sure there were other people that knew, too. It's just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I liked this one a lot, and I realized that uh, they only had eight pages to work with. But did you notice we never do find out what the hell Carol's deal is? This big secret that she had that, that her husband was blackmailing her about? They, yeah, they, we, we never we never find out. Yeah. I um, I really don't like this story. I really don't. Uh, don't make me feel bad. Uh, and, and the main reason I don't like it is because we have, for several months now, in, in comic book publishing time, we have this, like, Carol's got a big dark secret. Carol's got a big dark secret. She's keeping things from her employers. She meets some guy in the park who I thought was the thinker. Turned out that wasn't the case. But Carol's got a big secret. Carol's got a big secret. And it's all wrapped up in eight pages. <laughs> Nothing is really explained. And at the end, Helen is like, it's all good. I mean, I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah, it's she's just, been stealing money from her employer. Yeah. That's not too cool, really. But the other thing I had is that Steve Mitchell's inks on this suck. Suck horribly. I mean, I don't like the art in this one at all. Everything looks wonky. Especially the Huntress in certain shots where her eyes are all white and everything. Yeah. I just I was just really disappointed in this story from beginning to end. I hate feeling that way. I'm not feeling that way to be, like, pithy and cool. I just don't like it. I really don't. Wow. This is this is our first big disagreement in quite a while. Because i got to say, I, I dug the story. And I will agree with you that the wonkiness in the art, I will totally lay at the, at the feet of the inker. Yeah. But... I do like the the art in this because I really like the panel. Let's see, it's the third panel on page two, where she's looking at the the picture of her folks and then reflected in the mirror is the giant Batman head. I actually kind of like that. I think that's really cool. But you know, I like the sequence also when she becomes the huntress and goes to track down Joe at the at the um, train station and all that. I, I do like the art, but yeah, I see what you're saying about the wonkiness because. Uh, I, I, I think when Staten is not supported by a strong inker, then he does look weak. And I and I see people that don't care for him. I see what they're seeing yeah. in, in his art. It, he, he, he's the kind of artist that just needs a particular style of inker to make him shine. And, and when he doesn't get that, then, yeah, it, it does come across as, as weird and awkward and kind of cartoony. So, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. But that's all I got. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I completely hate this story. It's just the weakest that we've had so far. Uh, weaker even than the Solomon Grundy three-parter, <laughs> which had some odd damn moments. I don't know. I, I don't think – I don't know. I, I, do, I did have two other uh, real quick ones, though. Okay. I, I love the second panel here. On page two, she says, it's my own fault. And she's talking about how Harry learned her secret identity. She says, it's my fault, though. I let myself get too close to Harry, let my guard down too much. Uh, it takes a heck of a lot of play acting to maintain this double life. And I guess I just slipped out of my role for a second. And I'm like, no, you didn't. 
it's because Power Girl's got a big fucking mouth. Power Girl was the one that spilled the beans about the whole thing. You know, sometimes I wonder if one of two things don't happen in comics, you know, from issue to issue is either the, the writer forgot how they got where they are or they don't really sweat it. And maybe they they expect us not to remember from issue to issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, maybe maybe this owes back to the days. You know, when when you just you know you you'd read a comic, and you know I don't know throw it away or pass it to your kid brother or trade it yeah. with the kids down the street or something like that. So they didn't sweat the small stuff. You know, they didn't sweat the little details of exactly how you know so and so found out such and such. Just that they did. But I, yeah, I just and, Le- and Levis just... was doing a lot of writing at this point too. So yeah, yeah. I'm sure if you're writing, because he was doing Legion of Superheroes, and I'm sure he had other writing assignments as well uh, that were you know taking you know taking up his time and attention. Plus, he was like one of the the executives, I think, at this point as well. So the fact that he wrote as much as he did in the '80s always constantly surprises me, especially having such a loved run on the Legion of Superheroes while he was one of the higher-ups in the company as well. so There is one thing I spotted while we were discussing this, though, that, you know, I, like I said, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty good story. It has its wonkiness and all that. However, there was one thing I spotted that is simultaneously hilarious and also does knock the story down a significant peg in my, in my estimation, which is... Uh, third panel of the very last page all right huntress went out she hunted this guy down she knocked his ass out drags him back to carol and then she says uh uh oh carol says and that's joe you brought him back and the huntress says only long enough for you to take him down to the da's office and prefer charges against him for blackmail so it sounds like she's dumping the guy off and leaving it to carol yeah, to take the guy to the, yeah and and I want Carol to say um you mean the same guy that you had to save me from getting you know from beating the shit out of me at the beginning of the story that guy that you want me to take to the DA's office yeah sure I love it <laughs> uh, so you want to do a couple of emails before we end it for the week sure why not okay I'll take the first one we got one from Stan Johnston Hi, Stan. This is uh, marked episode 31. It says, Hi, guys. I really enjoyed you talking about your connection to All-Star Squadron at the beginning of the podcast. I love this series, especially the first three or four years of it. And it seems like I say this all the time, but it goes to my being an old fuck. I remember buying it off the spinner racks. (laughs) I was struck by how different it was from everything else that was available at the time. And I loved the fact that it was set in the World War II era. I'm going to stop for a second because it really was different from anything else on the stands. I've, I've read a good bit of DC from this era, especially like Justice League and Superman and, and, and other titles like that, and The Flash and Green Lantern. This was completely different from anything else going on. And I think that's probably why it holds up as well, because it's set in the past, so it can't be really dated to the time period it was uh, being published in. You know? I've always found that, to me, uh, stories that are set in a particular time period, like if you have a series in the 40s, the 50s, or 60s, never get dated to the era in which they are presented to people. 
I don't know if you feel the same way. Hmm. I, don't, I guess I'd never really thought about it all that much before, to be honest with you. It's like MASH can hold up today because it's set during the Korean War, even though it's really about oh, okay. the Vietnam War. Uh, yeah, okay, I get I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I do think that period stuff like that holds up better because then the references I I think we talked a little bit about this before, but then the references and all that they, they don't get dated. Whereas, you know, you, you, if you read a, a Superman comic from the from the 80s and it makes a topical, you know, like some of the John Byrne stuff, you know, Superman would say stuff like, you know, that's my name, don't wear it out, which is a reference to, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. You read that now and it does seem almost cringeworthy, you know? Yeah. But when it's specifically supposed to be set, you know, in a, within a particular era or something, I, I think that does make it different, you know. So I, I don't know what I don't know exactly how that works. It just it just does. It's like purposeful rather than than yeah, using exactly. a topical reference that ages mm-hmm. uncomfortably. You know, like like basically every Marvel book from nineteen sixties, you know, sixty one to now. I guess the difference would be is that, you know, I think that would be different if these characters aged, you know, and there was a natural progression where you could look back at the 60s Spider-Man, for example, and, you know, that was the adventures of him when he was, you know, X amount of years old. And then today, you know, he's long retired and his his son or daughter is, is wearing the webs kind of thing. Then it wouldn't seem so awkward. That would be something John Byrne needs to do for the Marvel Universe is do a Generations. Generations for Marvel. Yeah. I'd oh, love I... to see that. Yeah. I'd, I'd be on board with that. Because Cap could be the same age because the Super Soldier Serum keeps him young. You know, I'll, I'll buy into that. But, you know, Spider-Man as a man now who would be in his 60s mm-hmm. and Stark and everybody else would be almost in their 80s. So they're kids. But also showing them growing up naturally. Like, you know, up until about the mid-70s, Peter Parker was aging appropriately a little slower but appropriately to the you know the times he was living in you know you know he graduated from high school 20 30 issues into the series so even though that was years after he should have really graduated at least he graduated from high school and was growing up and was going to college so it'd be interesting to see you know Spider-Man in 1970 when he's in his mid 20s and then right. in the 1980s when he's in his 30s. And the same for every other character. God, I'd love to see that. But, but we're tangenting, like, really bad. So <laughs> unless you had something else to say, I don't want to... No, the only thing I've got to say about that is that we, you and I seriously need to need to get off the pot. And do that and fucking Generations episode. Generations, yeah, because we both are huge fans of it, and it's a great book. And, uh, yeah, we really, really need to do that mm-hmm. soon. Um, getting back into the email, that alone gave it gave it its own identity. I remember thinking that All Star Squadron was as close as I was ever going to get to knowing what it was like to buy a comic in the '40s. The music you used this episode was fantastic, very period, and it established the mood very effectively. Loved the new opening as well. Thank you very much for that. 
because uh, I, you know, especially in the beginning parts now where it's just us talking, I, I really think it's important during these segments, during the All Star segments especially, to get it right in there that this is a '40s era story, right? So and and and, and just you know, just that. It was tough finding which song to do, but that bam, that da da, I just oh god, I listened to it because sometimes I'll cut through music, like the opening section and everything, because I've heard it so much. But I'll sit there and listen to that every single time because it gets me in the mood to edit the episode. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you mentioned Roy Thomas being historically accurate in his writing. I was curious about the Eagles-Redskins game he referenced in issue one, so I got my pro football encyclopedia off the shelf for some fact-checking. It was nice to find that Roy Thomas had bothered to look the information up, especially considering that, that when he wrote the story, there was much more involved in research than just clicking a few links on a web page. No shit. This would have been an easy thing to fudge, since the game could have had a totally different outcome on Earth, too. Then again, I think he was living in New York City at the time, and there's a bunch of freaking libraries in New York City. So I'm sure you can. I'm sure it was work, but at least it's not like you, you know you live in Podunk, Idaho, you know where your where your library is the three issues of Life magazine from 1940 that they bothered to keep around. But um, I think you guys hit it on the head when you talked about the success of the series being partly due to Roy Thomas's decision to focus on lesser known characters. It was exciting for me because it almost—it was almost like being in on the ground floor of a new set of characters. They may have been around for years, but I was seeing them for the very first time. In 1981, if they hadn't been featured in JSA's All-Star Revival, I knew squat about them. It's good to find out that I'm not the only one who hit the dictionary to find out what the hell Sir Justin was talking about. Even in my mid-40s, I'm still learning shit from comic books. Later, Stan. Thank you very much for writing in, Stan. Yes, thank you, Stan. Excellent, excellent email. I love it. And with that, unfortunately, we are out of time. So, <laughs> yes, since we are actually keeping to the time that we uh, we say we're going to stop. So, um, uh, as as usual, the All Star Squadron issue has not been reprinted. But the, but the Wonder Woman, uh, the Huntress issue from Wonder Woman number two seventy seven, has been reprinted in the the Huntress Dark Knight Daughter uh, trade paperback that was released several years ago that I'm holding in my hand right now. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and 
www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory.